Welcome to the Net Effects Podcast, where Les Ottolenghi and Mark Bavasoto break down how the Fortune 500, the hottest startups, and the best VCs succeed through digital, social, and personal transformation. And now, here are your show hosts, Mark Bavasoto and Les Ottolenghi. From rags to riches, from no running water to all the water he wants, please welcome our next guest, the chairman, CEO, and founder of Zscaler, Mr. Jay Chowdhury. Thank you for joining us today, sir. Thank you for the opportunity. First off, it's been a very trying year for everybody on many different levels. How are your wife and three children? Everyone doing okay? Doing well. Making the best of the situation we can. I feel like I'm confined. I'm eager to get out. <laughs> I feel you. We're on the same level too. So one of the things we always do with our podcast is we have something called Unmasking the Executive. What is the story that the world doesn't know about Jay that will help us get a better understanding of what shaped you as a person? Where do we start? <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere as a young man, as a budding entrepreneur. <laughs> Or for that matter, really, you know, you've had such a, uh, a great leadership position in this last year. And obviously, your company has grown by leaps and bounds significantly during the pandemic as an accelerator, really, to the value that you provide. Where does that start for you? In other words, what is it that somebody in our audience doesn't know today that would be informative about Jay Chowdhury? Well, I would say in my childhood, I never dreamed that I'll be sitting in, in America, working on the latest and greatest cybersecurity technologies, helping do digital transformation. You know, then I look back and say, wow, is it really true? <laughs> or is it essentially a movie? Then I can say, wow, America is an amazing country, only in America. With lots of hard work and being smart, you can achieve almost anything out there. So I... I'm a lucky product of American dream. That's fantastic. I think we would all agree. I know that this last year you entered, and I'm not sure because, Jay, you are a very humble person. I've known you a number of years and have watched your career when we were both in Atlanta and then now out west, that you define humility. You don't look at the ambition of what you do in terms of money, even though you are now in the Forbes top 100 Americans in terms of wealth, there's a great quote that you have out there called uh, about happiness and happiness uh, being a state of mind. I think the quote exactly is happiness is a state of mind and money has very little to do with it. And of course, people from the outside might say, well, that's an interesting statement. But for you, what does that mean? What, what kind of clarity can you give us or give our listening audience about happiness and how money's not related to that? You know, it may have to do with my upbringing, my family. We didn't have a whole lot. And there's no TV or any of the stuff to even compare with what others had. So it, whatever we had felt wonderful. And I was influenced by the lives of people like Gandhi. Lincoln is my hero. Wow. I looked at those people who really had no motivation for money and really achieved some great things, made a difference, made the world move. So the basic thing I learned from my father, who was a farmer, was honesty, integrity, and hard work. And that's all we worked on. So never got into any special attachment for money. I recall first time I went back from the U.S. to India. I went to my high school, 
used to have a class session with students who wanted to talk to me. And one of the students said, Jay, how happy is an average American as compared to an average Indian? I didn't expect that question from a high school student. Mm. I had to think before I could answer it. And I thought and I said, I'm not sure. An average American is many, many times wealthier than an average Indian, but I'm not sure if they're any happier than an average Indian. I still recall the question answer I gave. I think it's true. It is truly a state of money. If we aren't happy, money doesn't make us happy. You need some basics in life, but beyond that, it's a right mindset. Mind is far more powerful than anything else out there. That's how I believed in. And I think that's made me successful. If I had attachment for money, I would have sold some of my companies very early on. <laughs> and they really got sold. I had so many offers to sell my first company. I just turned them down because I didn't care about it. So many companies wanted to acquire Zscaler. Yeah. I didn't even enter into any discussions. So. Wow, that is strength. And I know while doing my research on you, the first time you flew on an airplane was coming to America, correct? That's right. You made that journey here and you started off as a software engineer and moved into sales at IBM. From a software engineer to sales, you know, why was that an important transition for you at that point in your career? You know, if I may say my life has been a number of Call it accidental steps, so to speak. <laughs> there was never a planned journey from day one to start a company, do this, do this, do this. I got into engineering college because somebody said engineering is a good discipline and I didn't like wow. medicine. And then where do I go to school? I got to IIT by accident because someone told me at the last minute that there's something called IITs in India. <laughs> and... I became engineer. I was doing software development. Then this small startup I was working with in Cincinnati, Ohio, they started to take me for demonstrating the healthcare management and financial system we have built. Since I developed the system, I knew it inside out and I could do good demos. When I started to see customers and doing demos, I found that I enjoyed that far more than sitting in front of a terminal and writing code. So I, I discovered that I like engaging the people. I like my sales better than engineering. So that's what took me to go to IBM and say, I believe I can do the job in sales. Uh, that's, it was that simple. So probably that leads to uncovering your passion, what you like. You know, in America, we talk more about passion. In India, they never talk about your passion. You basically got the job you could get. And you do the job, you're done with that. Yeah. But as we have more options, discovering passion becomes important. And then I joined IBM. I found that the combination of my technical skill set and my extroverted personality to engage with people, listen to them, try to solve their problem, it became fun. So I never turned back. So it was a wonderful change from being an engineer to a business person. That sense of the passion guiding you. And uh, as you were saying, it's, it seems a little bit more less deliberate and, and maybe just also coincidental that you go from one thing to another. But that passion sounds like that's the consistency, that sort of truth to yeah. yourself. Yes. I think passion was there. I think the common theme I had was I always believed in working hard and I always believed in learning. Yeah. 
learning and working hard is the core essence of my life. And then one thing discovered another to another. For example, I had no idea I will ever do a startup. Just because I, I was reading about Netscape going public, World Wide Web was born, <laughs> Mozilla browser got started. I was fascinated by it. And I found every article about it. I read it and I said, wow, this is so exciting. And that story led me to say I should do a startup. So that was another pivot from corporate America to moving to a startup world. And what was that background just for our audience who may not know what your first startup was? Can you give us some background to that or some detail? The first startup was Secure IT, a security services company. We would design, architect, sell, deploy, support security uh, products such as firewalls, VPNs and the like. So this was mid-90s. Internet was just taking off. When companies were connecting to the internet, they needed some kind of security. No one knew anything about security. They all knew. And I had realized that new areas is a good thing because that's where you can figure things out and get better than trying to go to an existing area where you got lots of competitors. So I picked network security as the area to start. And I learned everything about it. And I said, got good at it. I started a company in that space. So you taught yourself to go into this startup. Mm-hmm. This was like, okay, we got an open space. People are not competing. I can mm-hmm. add value and I'm going to teach myself. That's remarkable. Yeah. How did the organization go and what happened next? You know, the, there's another interesting thing that happened in my life. I was excited. I put a business plan in place, went around Atlanta looking for VC funding, just like most people do. And Atlanta has only limited VC presence, definitely at that time. Yeah. So. They all said no. And I had a choice. I could give up my dream or I could put my life savings in line. We had a very simple lifestyle. My wife also used to work. She's a professional. So we had some decent amount of savings. And we said, hmm, what if we put these savings on the line and do our own startup? Wow. And Good thing she was supportive of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, that's awesome. And we started the company. It, I call it the biggest and the best gamble of our lives. Well, I don't know if it was a gamble. I mean, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. this is something that's continued. And you really you grew into yet another big company or another company that became bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it worked. So if you ask me, the happiness and money has nothing to do with that played a big role. If I really had attachment for money, I would have never started Secure IT because it was like taking chance with your life savings. And the next thing was when many companies came kind of knocking at the door to buy Secure IT, I kept on saying no. That was another good thing because no attachment for money. You're just making the right calls based on your conviction and your confidence. And you take chances. You say, do you, you do your best and then let's see what other results are. I want to go back a little bit and, and kind of tie in sales a little more, right? Because as we all know, sales is the lifeblood to any organization, right? So what is really in your mind, the keys to building a great sales engine? So I think I'll start with how I look at sales. Many people like to say, if I can sell something, I got the PO, let's move on. I kind of look at the other way around. I'd say, 
hmm, am I really solving a real problem a customer have? Do I have a good solution to sell? And can I make sure the customer is happy? I would rather undersell and over-deliver. So that philosophy has helped me a lot. And then building a sales engine, obviously it takes quite a bit and I had to learn along the way. And the success of my companies is not because I'm necessarily the best sales leader who builds the best engine, because I know I must hire the best leaders in sales, the best leader in engineering, the best leaders in customer support, who can actually build the great engine and the company be successful. A CEO needs to understand all areas fairly well, especially customers and especially technology. And then you bring the right experts on board as your partners and you drive it and grow it from there. You have this great sales engine, right? And you really talk about when building a startup, why it's important to build serious technology, right? Why is that important? If you think of startup, a startup has all the disadvantages against a large company. A large company is like a train running in gear four or five. A startup is this little thing stuck at gear zero. (laughs) It takes a lot more energy to go from gear zero to gear one to gear two. So if your technology is only 15, 20% better, it's incrementally better. It doesn't go anywhere because the big company is going to catch up with you. You don't have enough runway to take off. You get crushed. But if you start with disruptive technology, that's fundamentally different in many ways. And the big companies who have their train running in whatever gear, gear four, inertia is a powerful thing. They'll keep on running on the old technology in the old gear. While the new technology can be very disruptive. And that's the advantage. An example I'll give you is take DVD players. Here's an amazing technology. We could listen to music at home whenever we wanted to. And there were some great DVD player companies. Blockbusters made business out of making available those DVDs, movies you can watch at home. <laughs> then Netflix came with the Netflix streaming service. Totally disrupted. No CDs to send, nothing. You can literally click on your laptop. You listen to music. You move on to mobile phone. You click on the mobile phone. You can continue the same movie, same song without doing anything. Pretty disruptive, pretty clean technology. That's the kind of disruptive technologies that make startups successful. So I have always looked for disruptive, different technologies, and that's key to success. And Zscaler has had just incredible results in this last year, Jay. I mean, you had, I think this last quarter, year over year, 52% growth. I mean, that's just unheard of. So what is disruptive about Zscaler, just to the point you're making about disruptive technologies and then providing value, solving a problem? What is it that Zscaler does that is so disruptive and solve a big problem? Other companies have tried to do security doing the traditional way that has evolved over the past 30 years. It's my network. It's my data center. It's under my control. It's like a castle. I'm going to build a moat of security appliances. So we call it castle and moat security. Now, which was very good in the old world, just like in the real world, you know, we the kings used to protect themselves with castles till Air Force came around. <laughs> and those castles were no good. As applications moved the cloud, as users left the castle to go to greener postures, 
trying to protect the castle with castle and more to data center with castle and more is no good. Companies are still trying to use that approach. They're trying to stretch the castle, the moat to all kinds of places. It is silly, actually. We came up with the notion that don't do castle and moat. We are almost like a switchboard, an exchange. A user comes to us, say, I want to access this application, just like a phone switchboard. We connect that user to a particular application or a service, period. There's no inside, there's no outside, there's no castle, there's no mode. It's so simple, so elegant, so much safer, and better user experience. Now, it sounds simple, but building that exchange or switchboard had lots of complexity, but that's the hard work we did. For our users, it's simple, it's elegant, it's cost-effective, and it's far safer. And what gave you the vision for that? I mean, it's a remarkable approach because, just as you said, the natural bias, if you will, or the normal way of doing things has been the castle and moat. But, of course, the bad guys have gotten really good air forces, so they're coming after everybody. What inspired that way of thinking? How did you get there? Sometimes people ask me, oh, you started so early you had the vision. Uh, Not really. None of us have a crystal ball. The story was very simple. In 2008, when I started this, I had built and sold four startups. So I had no interest in doing one more and selling. (laughs) After the first one, I had that motivation because the first startup happened so well so fast. And I said, it must be a fluke. And I really do one more again. So that's what took me to do the other three. But this time, I want to do something big, something lasting. So then I said, what could be big and lasting? So for that, I started looking at what's the long-term trend for the next 5, 10, 15 years. I wasn't looking for doing something and selling it in two years and three years and moving on. So I asked myself only four questions. One, internet was a big source of information. Will it become a bigger source? The answer to me was yes. Two, I was using Salesforce and NetSuite since year 2001. I loved them. Will yep. more applications become SaaS? Yes. Right. right. Three, we're all mobile, using laptops, trios, Blackberries. iPhone was just announced the big screen. Are we going to become more mobile? Yes. If we are mobile, information and applications are cloud. Why should security sit in the data center? Let's build a security cloud that's sitting everywhere, and you can take the shortest path, go through this check post, and enjoy applications, interact with those applications uh, with great experience. It was pretty logical. We have a lot of startups that listen to our program. So Zscaler has become a very big public company. How do you still continue to have that startup mindset so you don't have these smaller competitors that just keep nipping away at you and doing things that are more disruptive? Yeah, it's a big thing. My number one priority is to not become a bureaucratic company like lots of big companies. So for that, we make sure we hire the right people. Lots of large companies become kind of political, come bureaucratic, you know. They kind of sit in the ivory tower. They get away from customers, right? The senior leadership think that they are gods. They need to sit here. (laughs) and let others do the work. We do the opposite. We lead by example, right? 
I'm out making customer calls just like every salesperson, my sales leader. We are engaged with customers. We're listening to them. We're solving the problems. And I think that's a culture you have to maintain. And you maintain the culture of hiring people who believe in that culture. And in the screening process, when we interview our head of people and culture, and I are involved in just looking for cultural fit, yeah. nothing else. Yeah. Okay. Domain expertise is less important to us. We're looking for people who are savvy, who are open-minded, who, who really have passion and desire. It's, yep. it's helping, and we hope to keep it that way. Is this why you, in some of the talks I listen to, is this why you prefer rising stars to seasoned executives? We need both, but I prefer rising stars quite often because I can have a lot more rising stars. Also, I think the seasoned executives, very good because they have the experience to scale a company, but a seasoned executive who kind of say, I had done it, I've been there. Now I'm, I want to cost. Okay. <laughs> Those seasoned executives aren't fit for Z-Scale. Even people who have a passion, desire, who are ambitious, who are driven, and that's what we want. Uh, so that's why we give up experience over passion and hunger and desire and smarts, right? That is pretty remarkable because, you know, you've grown this company in a significant way. You certainly have acquired a position in the very large enterprise, medium enterprise market spaces, and you ostensibly own at least a segment of the market above any other competitor. Some of the larger, longer, you know, more established companies in cybersecurity and so on have been looking to you and trying to figure out how you're doing this and, and maybe even copy a little bit of it. You mentioned culture, which... I think everyone would agree culture can win and probably yep. always wins over everything else. What, yep. what are the other key ingredients that you see now that make you a better fit with some of these large enterprises? Because you've been winning these contracts and they're winning them over and they really seem to like Zscaler. I would say our obsession for customer success is very, very good. Our NPS, which is net promoter score, is 76. Average NPS score of a SaaS company is about 30. I was going to say, yeah, you're double at least. Yeah, it's it because we all really go out and take care of the customers. And I guess it starts by setting an example. It starts with the CEO. It starts with the exact team. We all take care of the customers. So that's the big thing. If there's one more thing I would point out, that's our, our pace of innovation. I would take one smart, passionate engineer over 10 engineers from a mediocre large company because they innovate at a much faster pace. You can't just go and buy lots of companies and have a collection to say, I do better. Integration of those acquired companies is very tough. If you aren't integrating, you're creating a hassle for your customers because he got five consoles from five modules bought from the same company. We try not to do that. So keep on innovating, keep on taking on the customers. And to make that happen, we have a team that's really passionate and that's a pretty unique culture here. And for the customers that are now so enthusiastic and engaged, what are the sort of things that you're helping them with and in, in they're thinking about how they operate? In other words, what sort of priorities are you helping them set if they're a CISO or they're a CIO or, or CTO? Because it seems like you've been making a lot of inroads there at that leadership level and in their business thinking. What has been triggering their minds and their acceptance and, and really desire to use Zscaler? 
all enterprises are going through digital transformation. It's a buzzword, but at the end of the day, it starts with CIOs making sure applications are easily, quickly available. They're embracing SaaS. They're embracing public cloud to build and deploy application faster. But once they do that, the network has to change. This old hub and spoke network going to the data center is expensive. It's slow. It has security issues. Then security has to change, as I said, from Castellan mode to real zero trust security. We allow customers to do that. Legacy vendors want to protect that. It is fascinating. The thing that needs to be disrupted that helps a customer is what my competition doesn't want to change. So they want to go there, but they don't want to go there because it is disruptive for them. When paradigm shift takes place, incumbents are often disrupted. So incumbent network security companies are being disrupted. Incumbent networking companies are being disrupted. And customer benefits from what we're doing. So they report us their, their savings are so massive that when we present to them, they can't mm-hmm. believe that Zscaler could save them so much, so much ROI could happen. But it's very true. And that's why they get on the stage and publicly talk about how much we help them with their transformation journey. And as these um, sort of technology leaders and, and cybersecurity leaders become now more business leaders, just in the way you're describing them, you know, focused yep. on ROI, um, what are sort of the critical paths and, and critical things they should be thinking about over this next year? Because it seems like COVID's going to inspire even more change or post-COVID. Yes. I think the biggest challenge IT leaders are facing is cultural change, the mindset change. The teams have been working on the same technology from network and security point of view for the last 20 years. We all get comfortable with what we work on. All that needs to be changed. Just like we're moving various areas, we talked about Netflix service. Talk about how autos are changing from internal combustion engine cars to electric cars. Electric cars are simple, cleaner, but it's a mindset change. So IT leaders need to make sure they drive this level of change from top down. It can't be left for people to do bottom up. Really, that's the number one thing they need to look at. Number two, they need to be mindful that the vendors who have been serving them so well for the last 20 years, if they are getting disrupted, they're not going to give them the best advice that's in their interest. So they need to look at vendors who are really bringing newer, cleaner solutions rather than saying, I can bandage my old solution and solve the new kind of problems. These would be two most important things. It's interesting because I I sort of, as I listen to you talk about this, I get the sense that as you look at culture within your own organization, you're almost helping your customers, your clients, your partners think about their culture. Is there a fundamental social change in this notion of innovation and the speed of innovation? And how do you see that playing out? You know, I think about it quite often. Think of it, the speed all of us are seeing 20 years ago, 30 years, five years. I used to work for a mainframe company, IBM. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Then PCs came around. Look at how fast PCs took off. Right Then the next level, iPhones came around, how fast they took off, the cloud changes are happening. The pace of innovation is happening at a faster and faster pace. I think that's where the people need to wake up and say, unless we change and transform ourselves, 
we will be nowhere. Could you imagine 20 years ago that Kodak and Xerox would be where they are today? It was impossible to think about. So I think keeping that mindset that pace is taking off and the pace of innovation, it's causing disruption, but disruption is bad for people who can't change. Disruption is an opportunity for companies like Zscaler that are helping the businesses because this technology is not bad. It's actually making the world move in a more positive direction. Think of how richer our our life has become from experience point of view. I mean, news on my fingertips, music, I can pick up a phone, video call with my family. All those things are great things. But all these changes are disrupting some of the incumbents and creating opportunity for new ones. And that's basically Darwinism 101. And if we had not had teleconferencing, if you will, Zoom and so on, and secure ways to do virtual VPN the way that Zscaler has provided, I don't know how people would have gotten work done in the pandemic. So, yeah. Really so? Absolutely. Uh, these technologies yeah. are powerful. Yeah, they, they, they truly are. Um, yeah, and we, we feel satisfied. We feel very gratified that we played such a big role in helping enterprises during this COVID time because as shutdown happened, I mean, we need economic cycles. Millions of people's livelihood depends upon it. So to enable employees to work from home, we played an important role. My team was working 24 by 7 for several weeks um, in March of last year when COVID happened because some of the large companies like Siemens, the world, wanted hundreds of thousands of employees to be ready Mm -hmm. to work from home in a matter of days. And that says that it's more than cybersecurity. This whole idea of network security, virtualized networks, the proper cloud connection, that's really a business enabler. This is not about stopping something. This is about accelerating something. At least that's my take. It's first and foremost, it's business enabler while delivering great user experience, delivering resiliency so business doesn't go down and happening securely. To kind of sum this up a little bit from the conversation that we're having, do you really feel that it's customer obsession is the key to success? Yes, customer obsession, but you need to bring disruptive innovations and then customer obsession helps. If you really try to take the same old technology, customer obsession only goes so far because at the end of the day, customer is looking for solving the problems. If the problems can be solved in a much better way, and you take care of them, it becomes wonderful. That's amazing and well said from your standpoint. So let's make this quick transition to personal transformation. And one of the biggest things that we always want to ask is, obviously, this pandemic has changed a lot for a lot of people. So when you look deep within yourself, how have you personally transformed yourself as a father, a husband, and a business executive? You know, I ask this question myself all the time. I think you need to disrupt yourself on an ongoing basis as you go through the process because otherwise you don't succeed, you don't get good at it. Take Zscaler, for example. I never run such a large company. We had about 3,000 employees. When I sold Cypher Trust, we had about 300 employees in that company. <laughs> <laughs> it's so about 10x, but it's yeah. going at a faster pace. But there's always a first time for all of us. You just need to learn and adapt and change. I ask myself in the stage of every stage of the company, what are the things we stopped doing that made us successful? And what are the new things we should be doing to be successful? 
So I think that transformation becomes very important. And as we go through all of this stuff, I think figuring out the right balance in your family becomes important for all of us. I did that by having my wife join me in all the startups. Now, wow. if she is with me, she knows what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. Right? That's a great point. It, it just becomes not easier. I tell people that if you want to have a happy married life and if you want to be do a startup, get your spouse involved. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll appreciate what you're doing. It's fun. Actually, she comes from MBA in finance and information oh, systems. Oh, wow. It became very complimentary area for yeah. us. <laughs> and cost-effective early on. Uh, yeah, when you don't have money, right? uh, I didn't need to get a CFO to start with in any of the companies. On the family front, to me, family is very important. It's I have only three priorities. Family, health, and then business. Yeah. <laughs> business yeah. is the third priority. <clears throat> so health, I'm a health freak. Yep. Right food, right exercise, right sleep is fundamental. Family time is important. I, I'm used to... I got used to doing what I call bonding walks after dinner because I'll come home late. I would be at home at 8 p.m., my kids, and we'll do our dinner and we go for a bonding walk for about 30 to 40 minutes. That yeah. was very nice, right? So you, you figure out a way to adjust and do what needs to be done. Well, Jay, we are into our rapid fire part of the show. And these are five <laughs> questions which we'll be asking you. Um, just the first answer that comes to mind, please give us that answer. Uh, we'll start off with your favorite song. Oh, you know, I'm a country boy raised in a small village. So country <laughs> roads take me home. That's awesome. Favorite movie? Gandhi. Beautiful. I've watched Beautiful. it so many times. Favorite actor or actress? Favorite actor. So look, it goes back to the Gandhi movie, Ben. Yeah. What's the last Netflix? Kingsley, yeah. Right. Favorite business book? Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill. Mm, it's a fascinating collection of stories of what makes people successful. And final question for our audience in the next 12 months, what's the one thing or most important thing you would advise them to think about or take action on in their lives? I would say for the next 12 months, we're still not out of the woods. Please take care of your health, take care of your family. I'm eager to get out of my confinement, but we need to watch. So be careful. Take care of your health. Well, we want to thank our guest, the CEO and founder of Zscaler, Jay Chowdhury. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the NetEffects podcast, where we talk about digital transformation, social transformation, and personal transformation. We're very appreciative. I know this was one of our best, so we absolutely <laughs> appreciate it and would love to have you back again. Thank you, Jay. Yes. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate Thank it. Mark. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you.